what do you got there? The after I made my first video, someone comes into my church that next Sunday, says to me, "I've never been to church before in my life," and um, gives me that poster. <laughs> Doctor Doctor Peterson, sort yourself out, syrup. A reliable remedy for ontological crisis, existential dread, bloody postmodernism, cultural Marxism, identity politics, and moral relativism. <laughs> Why don't you tell the audience who you are, a little bit about yourself, as well as what your YouTube channel is about? I am a minister in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, which is a Dutch Reformed denomination. I pastor a church in Sacramento, California. About two and a half years ago, I was quite fascinated with the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson, and I noticed he was doing a biblical series. I, there are a lot of aspects of his work that, that really fascinated me, and I was also thinking about uh, communication and the medium of YouTube, and so I decided to make a couple videos about him, and people started watching my videos, which surprised me. So a couple of different things happened. One was I kept making videos where I would basically think out loud about Jordan Peterson's work and then John Verveke's work and Jonathan Peugeot's work and the work of the IDW and other people online, and especially how it intersects with Christianity. And people kept watching those videos and wanting conversations and so I started having conversations with people online and those conversations would get repetitive. So I started asking people if I could record them and post them and I did. So that led to a local meetup of people interested in Jordan Peterson. And that led to creation of other meetups in California and around the United States and hopefully Canada. And that led to the creation of a Discord server as an expression of those meetups, which is now called the Bridges of Meaning Discord server. And I just announced an online aspect of my church and I'm starting something called Estuary, which is a way to facilitate these ongoing meaning-making conversations among people not specifically of Christian um, belief. So all of that has been rolling out in the last two and a half years of my life. I'm curious, you mentioned Verveke. Did you get a chance to follow through on his meaning crisis lectures all the way to the end? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went all through them. John and I have had a number of conversations. Okay. So there's Pajot, there's Peterson, there's Verveke. And they have yep. different approaches. Yes. I'm curious, what do you see as the pros and cons of each? So Pajot, Verveke, Peterson. Peterson, in many ways, was the tip of the spear. And he, I also sometimes liken him to John the Baptist. We're not sure who Jesus is in this illustration, but Peterson came on and sort of broke things open and demonstrated that YouTube was a platform that could be used for important conversations and connections in ways that aren't warped like a lot of other social media platforms. And so in many ways, Peterson was the forerunner and he broke it open. Jonathan Peugeot is a, obviously a deeply Christian voice and also a, he's sort of like a modern day church father 
who is bringing onto the internet a ton of ancient wisdom and understanding and a whole new language that has been deeply embedded within our world, um, within our culture in terms of our movies. And, and Jonathan's been able to sort of explain that. Peterson did that too. Peterson, in some ways, again, Peterson was the tip of the spear. Some of what Jonathan Peugeot has done, Peterson had included. And Peterson and Jonathan had begun a friendship before um, Jordan Peterson's meteoric rise. John Vervecki, of course, was also a colleague of Peterson. And there, are, there were two substantive conversations that they had had, public conversations prior to Peterson's rise to fame, only one of which was, video, it was recorded and is available on YouTube. But that conversation is well worth watching. I've watched it a number of times because it nicely shows some of the differences between them. Jordan Peter, Jonathan also, Peterson's much more playful there than he is in modern times. Yes. He's been attacked so severely by the journalists that he seems right. to have developed an, an angst and, a, and an anger as well. Or at least no, absolutely. I, I do think that what I'm, I'm trying to argue for, and I think Jordan is, but I'm not clear because he said about 17,000 things in his last thing. And I want to... <laughs> I want to. I want to try and reply to them. Um, um, <laughs> um, I'll I, spit them out. You sort of. <laughs> um, With that conversation, you said there were two. I've only seen one. You mentioned one. There's only one, one that was recorded. John John Verveke told me about the other one and said it was a terrific conversation, but it wasn't recorded. Okay. Okay. So they had sort of a debate, and and because there are significant differences in their approach, Peterson is a preacher. So he's a John the Baptist figure, but he's got some cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, symbolism. He sort of had all of those pieces, but much more in a, in a preacherly format. As, as one of his critics noted in the Toronto Star, Jordan Peterson was looking to buy an unused church in order to hold forth on weekends with his ideas before he started his biblical series and, and that whole rise. So Peterson is really a preacher. Peugeot is an artist, and, but he's also an artist teacher. And so he's teaching his craft and he's teaching symbolism with his brother who isn't on YouTube, but has written a, a very interesting book. Verveke is a, Verveke is a, Peterson's a scientist too. And that's why Peterson sort of has all of these things together. Verveke is a scientist. He's much more of a careful scholar but he's also sort of a guru type who has, he knows Christianity very well. He knows a lot of Christian theology. He doesn't necessarily know the church real well, but he, you know, he knows Augustine and Neoplatonism and philosophy, but he, he also has his meditation in the morning, his Tai Chi. And so Verveke has really attracted the, I, Verveke isn't Christianity allergic, but sort of the rebel wisdom side of things, which tends to be a little Christianity allergic. There's a little bit of a post-traumatic stress in within Western post-Christendom about Christianity. But Verveke isn't that way at all, so he's a good conversation partner. Peterson is... Peugeot is, of course, openly... Uh, proselytizing in some ways, encouraging people to go to church. Peterson, not so sure about that. Verveke, more sure that that isn't the path to the future. So that's sort of how they all lay out. 
on that note, I think it's worthwhile to analyze this, let's say, resurgence or revival, then quotes, revival of Christianity uh, in terms of Christendom and to sort of put to the test how Christian, you know, this new Christianity is. In your opinion, you find that this resurgence, this revival is uh, the Christianity it's heralded out to be. I think we are, I, if you listen, Sargon of Akkad recently just did a video where he's not Jordan Peterson and he doesn't have Jordan Peterson's chops in terms of the philosophy or the psychology, but he basically laid out what a lot of people like Douglas Murray are saying, who are saying, it, it is, Ross Douthat asserts that in the 20th century, this is what happened in the mid-century, after World War I, many people were like, we're done with Christianity, we're done with the church, we're, we're going to go out there and, you know, we know, we know evolution now, Darwin has, Darwin has conquered, let's go out into the world after this. Communism was one branch, Nazi, uh, the Nazis were another branch. In the 20th century, the West looked at both those branches and said, no. But that sort of left Christianity in the West in limbo, plus the fact that American church attendance reached its peak historically during the Cold War. And so during the Eisenhower administration, Americans were like, we need, we're going we're gonna to draft God into this struggle with the Soviet Union. But that was a highly secular thing. So I, I think we are going to see another revival of sorts, but it's going to be, as is always the case, a little different from previous revivals and awakenings. So two things kind of come to mind, right? Uh, is that sort of brotherhood of uh, scientists or the secularism that comes about after the Great War, for sure. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, beyond just the Nazis and the uh, the socialist, right? Even the, the liberal idea that you could have a sort of brotherhood of humanity or uh, a sort of humanism that could replace uh, the existence of God, the, the rationalistic aspects that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy uh, found as more dangerous in some ways than, uh, you know, these the socialists or than the... Um, staunch traditionalists that they were they also wanted heads with uh, do you think that what we're seeing now is that old debate that many of the many of the opponents of uh Verveke, peterson Piaget, are those uh old scores that guys like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky had to settle but i think the debate is over and the new atheists don't know it. When Sargon of Akkad comes out with a video that says, why new atheism failed. And I think the, the rise of the new woke religion, when after, after, the, George Floyd, um, after the George Floyd killing and the protests, I knew new atheism was dead. It's, it's just dead. It's New Atheism's project started with, um, with Comte and his positivism. Comte did, you know, tried to erect this, this whole church edifice because he understood at least that 
human beings are religious animals and that if you don't have a religious if if you don't give people to act religiously their religiosity will infiltrate everything else and in many ways the new atheists were evangelical fundamentalist atheists but the the split in the church of atheism atheism plus versus kind of the classical liberal atheism demonstrated to me new atheism is dead and people and so now john verveke's a religion that isn't a religion brett weinstein talks to alistair mcgrath on unbelievable and at the end of it alistair mcgrath who has both a phd in science and a phd in in theology says to brett weinstein it almost sounds like you're starting to you know trying to start a new religion the difficulty that we have is that this word religion has been tagged and defined in a certain way that isn't true and is too narrow for how actual religion functions in our lives. So we use all these substitute words for it, like spirituality or meaning, all of those things. There's a uh, proto-presbyter for the Orthodox Church of America, a man by the name of Alexander Schmum. Uh, interesting guy. Uh, had he, he was a presbyter who would work with the Americans on Liberty Free Radio, this radio station that the Americans would broadcast into the Soviet Union. And, you know, he would, he would teach his religious teachings. And uh, Solzhenitsyn would be listening in on the other end and go, wow, okay, this guy, is, this guy knows what he's talking about. As we know, Solzhenitsyn goes to the gulag, comes out of the gulag, famous after that, with this denunciation of the Soviet Union. And he goes to see Alexander Schmem. And uh, Schmem was thinking, oh my God, Solzhenitsyn, this guy's like my hero. And when he finally meets him, Solzhenitsyn looks at him and goes, dude, you're like my greatest hero. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they're both blown away. It's like, it's amazing. And um, anyway, he, in his book, For the Life of the World, um, he talks about how, you know, there's a sense that Christ brought an end to religion. It, not the end of God. Uh, maybe not something so much as what, like, Greta Bosford believed or something of that nature. But, but an end to religion in the sense of the divide between the sacred and the world that we live in is broken down. There's no bridge building that, need, that needs to be had. Uh, is, is that the kind of sense that you're... Speaking in, when you say that, uh, you know, this sort of misappropriation of the word religion, how do you think it's been characterized? I think you articulated it well. A number of people have been making this point for a while. Rene Girard made it. Uh, someone who needs to be talked about more within this IDW context. Tom Holland, to me, even though when I interviewed Tom Holland, he knew almost nothing of Jordan Peterson. Tom Holland sort of arrived. Tom Holland, for me, is the historian's Jordan Peterson. If you read his book, Dominion, Tom Holland's story is the new atheist story. Uh, predecessors of this are two of the most influential fiction writers of the 20th century, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, because they went through the meaning crisis at the beginning of the 20th century and thought a lot of this stuff through. 
Tolkien quite literally in the trenches, right? World War One. Well, both of them. Stadium. Both of them fought in <laughs> a, a third person to be included with them. Another one of the Inklings who also needs to be in this conversation, who has been in the conversation um, to a point with Verveke, but in terms of my conversations, is Owen Barfield, who what you just laid out here, he basically talked about as the history of consciousness. Now, this obviously can get deep and esoteric pretty quickly yeah, with some of these elements. Just but, to avoid that really quickly. Um, yeah. Just to avoid, uh, it's a worthwhile conversation, but just to avoid it really quickly, let's keep it biblical. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense that this pattern of we who wrestle with angels forsaking God only to be lost and find our way to him once more uh, is, is very, it's very reminiscent of like the book of Judges. Right? And in those days, there was no king in Israel, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. Right? This kind of captures the relativism of that age, and if you would have every age. And, uh, well, the book of Judges, right? the great tragedy in it is because they, they don't have a king, people are doing what they, kind of whatever they want. And eventually, anytime there's a problem, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this as someone in your position, but just to inform audience or maybe people who aren't as familiar um, with this tradition, right? The, every time the Israelites find themselves in sort of the throes of chaos in this lawless land, a champion or a judge, right, would arise and deliver a deliverer, right? Who delivered the Israelites and save, save them from the threat. And uh, the biggest one being those Canaanites or Ammonites, these child-sacrificing tribesmen, right? Well, a big culmination of the the book, right, is Jephthah and Samson. These guys who, Jephthah, who defeats the child-sacrificers through, and that's child sacrifice. Uh, And Samson, who destroys the Philistines by destroying himself. Right. And that's quite the theme. Right. In this new revival that we see of Christianity, the fellows you name, are they, I think this is a paramount question, it's a biblical question, are they actually Christian? Because if they're not, have we made the mistake of Jephthah to cast out our enemies by becoming them? So that's what I'm very curious about. Well, this is where, this is where Tom Holland's work is vitally important, because if you've read Tom Holland's histories, when he gets to dominion, he realizes that the West is deeply Christian and in some ways amnesiac about it. And so when Sargon of Akkad makes a, and when Sargon of Akkad makes a video, he's realizing that, you know, Sam Harris is advocating for a version of Christian morality at the same time that he's denouncing Christianity. And and what this means is that the spirits that are at play moving us in the culture and moving our mouths and mouths and the ideas that we have, these spirits in many ways have come through Christendom from Christianity and we don't know it. That's Tom Holland's enormous thesis. So t- Tom Holland had this when he, you know, he had wrote a, he had written a book on the, the foundations of Islam and his book really angered uh, uh, many Muslims. And so one person comes to him one day and says, you know, you're picking on, you're picking on our, our faith. Why don't you do this to your own? And he thought, 
well, I don't have one because he was an atheist. Then he thought, well, maybe I'll do this to Christianity. And so one of, the, one of the things he also realized is that ancient people didn't think they had religion. It's sort of white people thinking they don't have culture. Um, I mean, it, it's, they're simply embedded in it. And so what Tom Holland recognizes is that you cannot understand the West apart from Christianity. And then the real question is, can you continue to maintain this moral framework, which we look at as humanism, which is in many ways Christianity-like, will this actually be able to be maintained when the religious practice substratum is no longer there, which is exactly the point that Jordan Peterson had been making all along, even though Tom Holland didn't know who Jordan Peterson was. So, Paul, I'm curious to know, what do you define as God? Well, those who watch my channel know I have this weird thing of God number one and God number two. Because when Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson met to debate, Sam Harris, at the end of the first Vancouver lecture, everyone is frustrated because we haven't gotten to the God stuff. And Jordan Peterson, and so, okay, Jordan, tell me, tell me what you think God is. And Jordan sits down and reads a bunch of things from his computer. And Sam Harris says, that's not God. God is someone who answers prayers and tells you not to masturbate. Well, the problem that Sam Harris has is that he doesn't know any theology and that the definition of God since the Enlightenment has been slowly morphing and changing through deism and a variety of other things. So when Sam Harris looks around at people who go to church, their God is what I call God number two. This is a this is a transcendent God who is conscious, answers prayer, you can have a personal relationship with, intervenes in history. Jordan Peterson was reading what I call God number one, which is an imminent God whose glory is everywhere in creation, who is built into it. And it's analogous to the question, if you were to tell Frodo, go find J.R.R. Tolkien, could you find Tolkien in Middle-earth? I don't think so, but I'm curious to where see where you're going with Tolkien this. Where isn't Tolkien in Middle-earth? Tolkien is, is everywhere in Middle-earth. You can't understand Middle-earth without Tolkien, yet Tolkien can't be found as such in Middle-earth. That's God number one. So there's a, just kind of to your point, I. I this idea of, I, I don't know about a separate world creator in the sense of uh, the world being divided between the sacred and profane is totally separate. Right? This idea of secularism uh, is relatively new compared to the, uh, the Christianity that, that, the, you know, that came out of early, that came out of Judaism. Uh, when, but what you're saying does resonate with a fellow named St. Gregory Palamas, right? This fellow who believed that there was a, a divine, if you would, essence to things. Um, sort of, if you would, the, 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 the spirit of things. Uh, it's, it's something almost similar to Plato's forms. Uh, but that this spirit, this essence was, was manifest in multiple things. And these manifestations, these works, were expressions of this essence, this sort of law. If you would, all entities falling down are expressions of gravity. 
Uh, but if you asked someone, can you pick up gravity for me or the law of gravity, it's a very real thing. At least we can get this one else. But it's it's questionable that anyone could say, yeah, hold on, I'll, I'll bring it right in. Right? Um, so there's, it, by that sense, yeah, this, this essence of essence, do you consider that to be uh, God? And I think there's a fair historical ground for that. It would be like trying to find Tolkien as a character. Right. And, and, and so, well, this is actually, so one of the things that I came about in my own video journey is the work of Ezekiel Kaufman. And you can find him interpreted in Christine Hayes's second lecture on the Old Testament in a Yale course online. Kaufman makes the point that in the ancient world, there was a, an assumed impersonal meta-divine realm in which there are gods and powers and all of these things. When you read the Bible, well, the sun isn't a personality like in mythologies. There's no origin story in the Bible similar to mythology. And so built into, built into the Hebrew scriptures is this idea that God number one and God number two are together. And that it isn't, and it's that, and theologians have been making this point to uh, debating atheists for years. Atheists will say, well, God is like Zeus. No, the, the, the framework is entirely different from the Bible and from the Greek understanding of what a God is. The, the other point with this is that another one of the things that I, that I really divined from, from Tom Holland's work was that in many ways, secularism is a secret second sister of the church. When the British colonized India, the Indians, the, those in India, they didn't know they had a religion. Well, the, the British came and had, well, they had to give it a name. And so, well, you have a religion. Well, it's called Hinduism. This is the same observation that Tom Holland makes of the ancient world. If you would, the word religion is almost not in the Bible at all. And, and where it is in the Bible in the book of James is significant in terms of how the Hebrew prophets changed this understanding of what a religion is. And so what happens in modernity is that, well, now suddenly the, assume, the, the assumption is that there's this secular, in a sense, a secular, empty, metadivine realm, which is impersonal. And, and so, well, what happens as... as as colonialism conquers the world is that, well, now suddenly everybody has a religion. They might be Christian, they might be Judas, they might be Hindu, they might be Buddhist. This is a, this is a Christian conception that has entirely remade the world and nobody knows it. And what you've actually done is set up Christianity in this conception and you've also set up the opposite of Christianity, not the opposite, but you've also set up this, this secret sister called secularism that is sort of next to the church, but I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to live in this secular realm. You know, read Charles Taylor. It's an entirely new thought that Christianity brought into the world. Are these new Christians, if you would, if you can call the old people the new atheists, okay, well, is this new Christianity, this revival that we were talking about earlier with Peterson, Jean maybe with the exception of Jean Piaget in this case, uh, and Verbeke, is, is this secular Christianity still, or have we broken it? 
And what does if what is the Christian's relationship to secularism? If there is a in so much as there is a state, should it be a Christian state? People get most annoyed when I make the observation that Jordan Peterson is highly postmodern. Because they say, no, he's fighting against postmodernity, but they have this idea, this political idea about you know, all of this stuff as postmodernity. But in a sense, after modernity, we all can't help be but postmodern. And this is, in a sense, the realm in which Christianity lives within the secular space. Christianity gives birth to secularism. In the experiment of the United States, we now you have a secular, first a secular federal government, and then by the early 19th century, all the states, the states all, many, nine of the 12, nine of the 13 colonies had had state churches before that, but you had the Quakers and you had the, the Puritans and you had the Anglicans. So, so secular, secularity begins to dawn, but of course, this only dawns in Christendom. This is a daughter of Christendom. Now, this awakening of God number two. So Charles Colson was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. Um, his life is falling apart. They're caught in the Watergate web. What is Charles Colson going to do? He meets a, an evangelical Christian, a born-again Christian. And so Charles Colson has this experience. He has a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes home to his wife and says, honey, I'm a Christian. And she says, I thought we were Episcopalian. So this is, and, and so that God that Charles Colson woke up to was God number two. He has this living relationship with God number two. This is exactly the God that, that Sam Harris is denouncing. Now, where we're probably going is, and what, what Jordan Peterson essentially does is comes onto the scene and says, let me show you God number one. And everybody lights up. And suddenly all of those people that start Jordan Peterson took people right to the edge, didn't bring them over the edge. And there's some celebrity atheists that have note that. Suddenly, when they go over the edge, where do they drop into? They drop into the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church because they need a secular realm in which not only... So if you look at Owen Barfield, Barfield says basically a divide opened up in participation. And eventually that happened via these narrow channels of sacraments. What happens with Peterson is Peterson, in a sense, triggers all this again in people. I want to live in a world alive with Jesus, not just as some superhero floating around like some pagan god, which is, in a sense, what Sam Harris is denouncing, but the god who made heaven and earth, the Tolkien of Middle Earth. I want to have a personal relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien if I'm Aragorn or Frodo. And that's what Peterson tripped. What's the relationship between God number one and two? Can you say that one doesn't exist without automatically denouncing the other? No, in Christianity, they're, they're completely, God is imminent and transcendent. God is both a person. He is the system of all systems, kind of the impersonal side. He's also the person of all persons. See, you know when people get frustrated with Peterson because he's not saying that whether or not he believes in God, he'll say it depends and I need to understand what you mean and also what I mean because I'm not even clear on it myself. It's as if Sam Harris is disproving God number two, or at least he believes he's disproving it. And then Peterson is not saying, I agree with you, Sam, but there is also God number one. He's saying, exactly. no comment, God number one. He's not saying, 
I agree. He's saying, no comment. God number one is there also. And Sam's like, well, what about God number two? He's like, no, God number one. Oh, yeah, but tell me about God number two. God number one. God number one. Uh, well, and, and whenever Peterson says, speaking as a psychologist, keeping this scientific, that's exactly what he's saying. I'm keeping it in the realm of God number one. Now, in Christian theology, I'm keeping this in the realm of general revelation. That's a theological language. But, and, but then if you push Peterson, like ask him about the resurrection, he'll say things like, I don't know how far this goes. And so he's open to God number two. He's saying, I can't really speak about that as a scientist because science doesn't actually go there. Because if you look at his transliminal lectures before his meteoric rise, he says it very clearly. He says, you know, what happened with science was you took consciousness and personhood out of the equation. That's in a sense, Woden losing one of his eyes. So now I'm only going to see the world through, um, if you look at Wilfred Sellers, who was a 20th century philosopher, he said, there's two modes we're dealing with. There's the manifest image and the scientific image. The scientific image works if you take consciousness and personality out of the picture. This is where Peugeot comes in, because Peugeot says, at the end of modernity, you can find this in Thomas Nagel as well, at the end of modernity, we're we've realized the limits of this trick. So as Peugeot says, what we are are patterns seeing patterns. And this is right, this is the frontier where Peterson brings you saying, this is what we can learn with the scientific trick of covering one eye. Sam Harris doesn't understand what he's doing. And so the inconsistencies that he expresses in his conversation with Brett Weinstein, for example, he keeps switching eyes. He's saying, everything is determinism. We're just all watching a movie. But go out there and do psychedelics and have a meaningful life. You say, well, wait a minute. You just told me this. He's just switching eyes all the time. But there's the manifest image and the scientific image. Peterson brings you right to the edge. So that idea, you were comparing him to John the Baptist before. Uh, I can definitely see the idea of, I come to you as a voice crying out in the wilderness, right? Yeah, okay, for sure. Uh, um, I don't know if he's, he's eaten locusts and honey in the wilderness either, but... He is if now. He, if he would have lost his job, well, we'll see. Uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to this idea of the resurrection, though, which um, is almost, in essence, an antithetical uh, claim as far as logic is concerned, there's almost a certain sense that... Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty large buy-in. To be to be a Christian is, if you would, at least in large part, to believe in the resurrection in in some form. Um, there's a sense that this illogical claim, this totally uh, irrational almost claim, is the reason why guys like Tertullian were so adamantly against the philosophers, were so adamantly against uh, the intellectuals. Right? He says, for example, uh, there's a line where Tertullian, we have this prepared for a different question, but bring it up now, um, where the Christian apologist Tertullian is yelling at these intellectuals in like 240, and he's saying, for those who compels, or for who compels a philosopher to offer sacrifice, or to swear, or to publicly use useless lamps, 
or sorry, to publicly expose useless lamps at midday. Why they even attack your gods openly and blame your, your superstitions in their writings with your approval. Most of them bark against your princes with, the, with your support and countenance, and they are more readily rewarded with statues and salaries than sentenced to the beasts. And justly so, for they are termed philosophers, not Christians. This name of philosophers does not put demons to flight or demons to flight. Why should it when philosophers rank demons to gods? So Oh, I can't hear Sorry. you. There's there's this idea in early Christianity. That is to say that uh, it, it's sort of an anti-intellectualist current, precisely because of the faith, the need of faith, almost irrationality or supra-rationality uh, in that system of belief. Can, can you ever rationally prove God's existence? If the answer is no, is what this new revivalist movement doing kind of a, a futile attempt at that? Even when you frame the question that way, can you rationally prove God's existence? Could Frodo rationally prove Tolkien's existence? Can you use psychology to prove the resurrection? Is that why we find the silence there? And if uh, not, what else is needed? Well, I, I am not, well, so here's a fun thing about the, um, here's a fun thing about the gospels. Jesus does these crazy outsized miracles in front of his disciples. He stills the storm. He raises the dead. He, he heals hosts of people. You would think, see, this is this whole proof thing, because we think, well, if someone would prove God to me or the resurrection, then, and as a pastor, I say, then what? Because look at the disciples. Jesus, they, they lived with the guy for three years. They saw all these miracles. They saw all this stuff. And Peter just at the end says, you know, Jesus, I'm so down with you. If It doesn't matter. I'll give my life for you. And then a bunch of temple guards show up at night in, in, the, in the garden. And Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off an ear. And Jesus says, I'll have none of that. And heals the guy's ear. And then Peterson runs and hides in a room and sucks his thumb. Miracles or proofs don't actually move us like modern people think they should. Because this is, in a sense, the fallacy of the idea that human beings are rational animals. Now we have a capacity for rationality, but you know, again, another big theme within Peterson was we're mysteries to ourselves. We don't know why we're doing what we're doing. And I, to me, that's abundantly clear just watching human beings. Look at all the ways that people completely sabotage what all of us would look at as the best things in their lives. And again, Tolkien and Dostoevsky, they prove that in spades. Just look at, read Tolkien's confessions. It's amazing. There's a sense that even with uh, St. Thomas, uh, you know, with him having to touch, there's a part where Christ comes back, the disciples like, nah, it's not you. What, how do we know it's you? Tom says this, like, come on. And, uh, you know, Christ was like, oh, go, go ahead, feel the stigmata, like the hole in my, in my hand from when they nailed him to a cross. And Tom feels it and he says, what? Oh, wow, okay, now I believe. Uh, I remember there was an, an Orthodox liturgy 
that declare this sense of rationalist, this need for rationalist proof, that Tom, even in that instance, is, is sinning. That this, this, should, this is not the way you go about understanding Christ's resurrection, even if he were to appear uh, before you. You mentioned Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky says something along the lines of, if you were to mathematically disprove God's existence, I would still be with Christ. It's interesting. It's a whole other level of thought. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. And, and that's human beings, right? I mean, well, people need to be told to eat right and exercise. Oh, tell them. Go ahead. And, you know, every, every, psycholo- every therapist knows this. Every pastor knows this. People come to church and they think, oh, the way church works this. The pastor tells people what to do and people do it. No pastor who's paying attention believes that because it's, it's not how people work. This is the comedy in uh, the story of Jonah, right? Jonah's sent to Nineveh, go convert the Ninevites. 
I don't want to. You know, he tries to avoid it. He finally gets there. He looks at these people who he who are the enemies, right? You're like enemies. He really doesn't like them. And uh, he says something almost like, um, you know, repent or the city's going to be overturned. Something like that. And the whole, it says, it's, it's a spoof. The book of Jonah is like a spoof of the prophet narrative. The people believe, they're like, really? Wow, okay. It says they believe, their children believe, the cows believe, and everyone, you know, and, and their mums uh, changes their course of action. And you know, the reason why that's a spoof is because everywhere else, it doesn't happen. So to, to your point, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it says a lot about the human condition. But then what makes people change? Well, and, and your point earlier about, well, how, why should Jordan Peterson be making Christians? Why should Jordan Peterson probably be, in my opinion, I don't see, especially don't see everyone in the third world, but in my opinion, Jordan Peterson was the most effective evangelist for Christianity that we've seen over the last five years. This is a guy who isn't a Christian. This is a guy who, in some, you know, there's a, he, he, there's a book signing that's on video by a guy who has a podcast in, in Australia where this guy comes up to Peterson and says, oh, Dr. Peterson, please sign your book. Because of you, I've started going to church and I've become a Christian. And Peterson says, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, that, that wasn't Jordan's thing. Look at Peugeot's latest video about uh, the story we live within. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot tells you know, a story about one of his last you know, encounters with Peterson where, you know, the line of demarcation between Jonathan Peugeot and Jordan Peterson is Peterson's skeptical about the Christian church. Peugeot isn't. Okay, hold up here, because if the Christianity that he's converting them to is, in your own words, postmodern, then is he really converting people? And if he's not, is this success short-lived? Are we, have we found Jephthah? Have we found Samuel, right? Are the Philistines still amongst us? And that question, I think, you know, is is really the crux of the issue. If the answer is, you know, yes, that he's that these this flock of let's say Petersonians are, are still as postmodern as ever, um, how many people did he convert? And there's also a sense it's like what a St. Ignatius writes, I believe in his letter to the Magnesians, uh, about how God works. He talks about the silence of God, that God, you know, there's a sort of silent trumpet that happens, these, these large, great historical movements happening in the corner of the earth and some stable in Bethlehem. Like, it's not, it's never a giant parade, if you would, down the street, and there's a very, it's very victorious, like an emperor. You know, he comes in riding on a donkey, not on a war horse. And that, you know, if, if that's the case, is the real conversion happening elsewhere? Is it happening at places like your church? One of, the most common, one of the most common questions I get is, what's a real Christian? And I, my definition is someone who trusts Jesus more than they trust themselves. Okay, would Sam Harris then be a real Christian? Peterson would say he's a real Christian, but Sam Harris is like, I don't even think Jesus lived, or perhaps he's just a dude. Sam Harris doesn't trust Jesus more than he trusts himself. Sam Harris trusts himself. Jordan Peterson is 
a little wobbly on should I identify as a Christian? I don't know. Um, if you go to the Orthodox Church, in a sense, the Orthodox Church defines who's a Christian. So, so part of what we're dealing with are all the issues built into the Protestant Reformation. We, we shouldn't, we're very short-lived creatures, and we think things change fast, but they don't change anywhere near as fast as we assume they do. If I may speak just very, very quickly on the defense of the, the Orthodox on that, or not even the offense, just to poke fun. Um, there's an old joke <laughs> where a, there's a Protestant meets an Orthodox, and the Orthodox, <laughs> they start talking about God, and you know the Orthodox says, well, hey, you know, why don't you stop by the the church and um the, the protestant says oh no thank you I, I don't like organized religion and the the orthodox says perfect you'll fit right in because they they're super disorganized it's not like the catholic church right where they have all these orders you know they've got a crap oh there's a problem with you know we need people to translate things we got a whole crack team of dominicans and that's what they do where like there's this bureaucracy of bureaucracy. no it's anarchy in a lot of ways. I think most recently, the Russian Orthodox Church, huge, these are, and the Greek Orthodox Church, these are the two largest churches in Orthodoxy, uh, are no longer in communion over the Ukraine. There's an issue in Ukraine. That's right, great schism round too. So, but but here's the thing, the, the Greek Orthodox, for example, are in communion with the Antiochians, and the Antiochians are in communion with the Russians, so they're still kind of, <laughs> like, it's an anarchy, all right? Uh, I, don't, I don't know who determines who is or isn't a Christian in that religion. It's and, and <laughs> Good point, good point. We can dream, but <laughs> please. But, it, but in terms of self-identification, there's no question that Jordan Peterson... So... So what I think is going to happen is that a lot of people who consider themselves atheists are going to continue to have another existential crisis because like Sargon of Akkad, and I think Verveke, Verveke is in many ways at the forefront of this because Verveke is consciously seeking a religion that isn't a religion. He, he understands that there needs to be something that functions like this because without this, life cannot be stable or meaningful and a meaning crisis ensues and we suffer from reciprocal narrowing. Okay. And he says religion, but without a religion, the without a religion part is in reference to what? Well, he's talking about the two, in a sense, there's religion one and religion two, because when you ask Sam Harris, what's religion, he'll say praying, going to church, that, that these practices somehow connect up with this, with this God being that's within the system and affects changes positively in a certain way. That's how many atheists understand religion. It's amazing to me how new atheists avoid one of the most salient definitions of religion, which was Durkheim, which Jonathan Haidt has basically continued to work off of, that says religion is the thing through which people organize themselves. That's a much smarter definition of religion. And so in some senses, Verveke's taking the, re we need a religion in the Durkheimian sense that it is a religion in the Sam Harris sense. You know, there's this beautiful scholar, he's still uh, very active now in Russia, his name is, uh, oops, I'm 
His name, oh, anyway, sorry. So there's this beautiful scholar in uh, Russia. His name is Stephen Kotkin. And he, he wrote a book analyzing Stalinism called uh, Stalin. It's called uh, Magnetic Mountain Stalinism as a Civilization. Great book. And he, he analyzes it through post, kind of postmodern lens. Like in the beginning, he's talking about Foucault and he's thanking Foucault for this lens of analysis. And what's his, his magnum? He says, yeah, the best way to understand Stalinism it is as like a theocracy. You know, the historians before, like Robert Conquest, uh, they would see Stalin as like the evil dictator mastermind. He writes his list, he sends it out. He's just got like crazy superpower like will, the grand architect. Kotkin's like, no, you want to find out who gets purged and who's calling in the purges? Like, oh, hey, I, I noticed that my neighbor, you know, I'm not calling him, but he's like, hey, I noticed that my neighbor is, you know, uh, normally only eating this many uh, potatoes, but now he's bringing in twice that amount. Kulak, we got to get that guy. Uh, it's the neighbors. It's not Stalin in his orb. It's the, the people are active participants, you know. And so that idea of how does society organize as a religion? Yeah, the citizenry have beliefs. And there's a sense that people get the governments they, they deserve. That's kind of Aristotle's meaning, right? So, Peter, okay, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, Peterson has this great, has this great section in in one of his Maps of Meaning courses where he says, you know, people imagine that Hitler or Stalin take over and that that's how they run the country. He says, it's completely untrue. People self-tyrannize them. People self-tyrannize all the way down to the bottom. That's the only way those systems work. And when Peter said, said that, I, I completely understood because I'm part of, you know, Dutch Calvinism is part of this larger Calvinist tradition and, and Calvinists know self-tyranny. We do it all the time. And but but that's actually the the substance through which a society can cohere. So, for example, at, at about 2012, 2013, I began seeing, you know, what today we would call woke religion. I began seeing this seep in. And so I and I began studying this a little bit. And so I found this website, Everyday Feminism, and I thought, well, I'll read them every day and I'll find out what what feminism is. And I, I began to discover it is, in fact, a, an entire religion with self-tyrannization. And I looked at Christian law and, and ex moral expectations compared to their new system. And I thought, wow, you, you really have to be, you really have to be committed if you're actually going to fulfill the law of everyday feminism, because it's all these little mind traps and no, that tyranny goes all the way down, but that is normal for human beings. And when we use this word socialization, that's what we're doing with our children. No, you can't steal the toy and smack the other two-year-old with it. No, I'll hit you, you know? And so that's what a conscience is. You're saying that socialization is self-tyranny? Yeah, because you are, you know, when you walk into a room, what do you want to do? Well, eat everything, screw everything, take everything. That's normal for a human being. Why don't you do it? You've been right. socialized. There's a difference between tyranny to yourself and then tyranny to others in the sense of the, of the Stalin regime with people commenting on their neighbors. So are you using self you're using self-tyranny in two different ways, one to apply to oneself and then one to apply to those on the same level within a hierarchy snitching on others? 
that's regular tyranny. <laughs> Self-tyranny is, and, and, and again, Solzhenitsyn wrote about this too, because, you know, who are the worst people in the, in the gulags? They were the true believers. And, you know, surely, surely the state knew what it was doing when it sent me here, because I've not been faithful to the people's cause. You know, though, uh, in Christianity, especially in monasticism, this is a very prevalent uh, theme, right? the, the understanding of freedom that we have now as one laden with choice is it is not, it's not as much of an issue in the, the ancient world. Like the, the idea of freedom was more of a fulfillment of one's nature. And so when you look at something like Sinchon Climactus, saying the latter divine ascent, right? He writes on, uh, he writes on, you know, this idea that the Christian is almost a slave to God, right? Like the, it's not that you don't have a master. It's that you liberate yourself because your master is higher than any earthly master you could imagine. Um, not that you do whatever you want to do, right? It's, it's that you, you still answer that. So there's this huge self-tyrannizing and discipline in terms of your, uh, in terms of your body, right? And like, and what you, uh, down, I mean, that's the idea of asceticism. You, you practice ritual fasting. Not so that you can just splurge because you lost the calories. It's you practice ritual fasting so that when the hardship comes, man, you are you're ready for it. Right? You're this is nothing to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and the question is also who is your master? I mean, Bob Dylan, you gotta serve somebody. Well, in Christianity, your master lays down his life for you, or your master gives his son as an offering for you. Uh, what better master could you find? That as opposed to Stalin, who was happy to have all of the people lay down their lives for him. There's a, on that subject of uh, freedom, there is a fellow uh, who is in the, he's in Russia. He's a guy by the name of Alexander Dugan. Have you ever heard of this man? He's, he's a bit of an oddball, but his, he's taking that ancient understanding of freedom. It's freedom, uh, freedom as something that's the fulfillment of nature and not so much the ability to choose. And he's using that to sort of justify the uh, authoritarianism we find in Putin. You know, oh, like, it, it's an interesting claim. He's saying, hey, you know, look, look, at, the, look at Trump. You voted. Uh, what's his approval rating? Ah, oh, it sucks. Interesting. But you have all this choice, all this choice, America. Isn't that great? Well, meanwhile, you know, in Putin's Russia, you don't really have a choice, not really. But look how much the people love him. Even Putin's opponents, by the way, lament about how much the people love him and how high he does in these like third-party polls. So you know, it's anyway. So he uses it as as almost like an assault to Western liberty. I know Protestantism in part, especially Calvinism comes out of this debate of freedom as choice, right? You know, uh, who chose that you be the elect or the damned? Do you, I don't mean to get this into like the free will debate, but how does Calvinism, because what a quagmire, but, um, and almost, but how does Calvinism- I definitely reconcile? want to get into the free will debate. <laughs> how does Calvinism uh, reconcile that older understanding of freedom with this new understanding of freedom as choice? 
if you read what Calvin wrote, in many ways, he echoes at least, there is a, um, I've had a couple of conversations with a scholar out of, um, out of uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, Brett Sockold. And he wrote Transubstantiation. It's a wonderful book where he basically is, is, is reading Luther and Calvin and Aquinas and saying, you know, Calvin and Luther, and especially Calvin, who's really trying to capture Aquinas. Calvin is not anywhere near as far from Roman Catholic belief with respect to free will as, as people would imagine. What happens, however, so Calvin's in the 16th century, what happens in the 17th century, however, now with all of this philosophical change is that you have this new, this new struggle in Calvinism. And I think this is because deism and the Enlightenment fundamentally changed the imaginary in which we imagine things like will. And, and part of what, if you listen to Sockold and someone like Bishop Barron, they'll talk about primary and secondary agency. And this again is the question, when Frodo is struggling up Mount Doom, is Tolkien pushing Frodo up Mount Doom or is Frodo going up of his own volition? And so, and so these questions of agency in deism, because again, understand what deism says. In a sense, deism says the actions of God are systematized and in a sense separated from him. This is where you get into Barfieldian separation. And right. so... It's, it's these questions that lead to the 17th, 18th, and 19th century Calvinisms where, you know, agency is so completely divorced. But you don't find that in older systems. And, you know, this, there's so much evidence, too, for that, this uh, dualism that you're describing, right? I, and of which I think the, has, yes, dualism has won over the free will debate, personally, which is why I don't think it bears any fruit anymore, to be honest, or at least as much fruit as it could have, right? This, this idea of, um, this, this idea that there's this separate otherworldly, uh, it's even why I get slightly more uncomfortable when you're talking about uh, Tolkien versus Lord of the Rings. It would be like Tolkien versus Lord of the Rings if Tolkien could, was so integrally in Lord of the Rings that he, he wasn't even in a separate reality. It's like, that is how integral of a connection, that's how intimate of a connection, right, God would have with creation. Uh, and so, like, when you look at, like, early Christians, they're not debating about the natural and the supernatural, something that immediately bides into this dualism. They are trying to answer the question of when does God cease to be creation, when does creation cease to be God? It's, it's very, but in, within the realm of creation is angels, demons, your grandma, like, everyone, right? Um all these sort of forces of the world. Do you think that we're, we're going to keep veering away from that? Or do you think we're going to eventually reconcile and return back to this monism? Well, this is in many ways the conversation we're having. Because, so, if the, the challenge to a, let's say, a biblical 
the, the challenge is okay how how can how can how can a good god yield a world in which there's so much suffering all right that question haunts people all over the place and and in many ways religions are the schema by which people try to answer that question or or the question is well it's a you know it's a manichaean or it's a it's a it, it was a substandard god that produced the world okay so i don't know maybe i'm getting maybe i'm not no 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 right you're right like the martianites like even early christianity you find yeah. this as an answer yeah. there's old testament god the demiurge right who creates uh who is kind of indifferent almost cruel and then we have he has a kid he lightens up <laughs> i'm just kidding but uh he has a kid right and we have christ and you know oh that's the good god of you know, true lasting creation but there's there's this irreconcilable dualism there i i think it's it's far more fruitful to see creation on the spectrum right there's there's a sense that and it, it almost explains the cruelty right like kind of what shakespeare says with um in Romeo and Juliet, this has much to do with hate, but more with love. If you were to ask, uh, I don't know, an uh, ancient Jew, why are we putting the left? Why are we? Why are we isolating the lepers? Very, very good question during a quarantine era. Why are we isolating the sick people? Right? <laughs> and, and the Jewish guy would say, it's not because we hate them. Right? Like it's, it, it has to do with love. We're trying to save uh, the body. Right here, that's that's a huge theme. Um, you know, or if you look at like the story of Noah with this idea of, well, why didn't everyone get loaded onto the, the ark? Well, we can't, uh, we can't save them. And we don't just mean from the flood. We mean like as, as human beings, we can't, can't save them. A, well, they're not, they're, they might not even be human beings. That's what we, I mean, because that's, I mean, you look at almost, an anthropologist will tell you almost any isolated people group call themselves the people and call everybody else not the people and has to do with a whole bunch of things. But, you know, you, I, I don't know if you've ever read any Owen Barfield, but you should really take a look at him because it's all these issues that he, that he works with because there's this, there's this separation that happens and and once you understand what Barfield is pointing at and you read the Bible again, you begin to notice things like in, in, in a sense, what is happening in the Mosaic law is you have this mapping of participation. And the reason that the leopards, the, the leopards, <laughs> they're outside the camp too, hopefully. The lepers are outside the camp is be, and, and the women menstruating are outside the camp is because there's a fundamental order to things and and your participation in that order depends on your cleanliness, okay? So there is, you know, people have tried all kinds of different schema to understand the, the mosaic purity codes. And I think in some ways, chaos and order isn't the bad mapping of some of this, that a fish that swims through the water and has scales, that's in order. Something that's climbing along the bottom of the sea I mean, so, so you get this mapping of order and disorder. But then Jesus comes along and says, which, which people don't pay anywhere near as sufficient attention to, says, uh, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. Right, there's this, and there's this and, sense of, that the miracle is not, um, it's, if you would, I guess this is a miracle. There's a sense that Christ isn't limited. Where, you know, when he sees the leper, it's not, 
man, we got to quarantine that guy. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do with him. It's, it's the opposite, right? The, if you were the hat trick in Christendom is you, you clean. It's, it, like, it's not that you just keep the dirty away. You purify, you redeem, you heal the leper. You, uh, and, and Jews would know this at the time, like what that meant, what that story meant. Whether literally or unliterally or allegory doesn't really matter. It's that truth. Can, you, can we clean the world? Um, can we heal? Can we forgive? Right, like that. That I think is spoke to what we were originally talking about. I think that's what makes someone more of a Christian. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, so when you know they 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 bring the paralytic through the through the roof, and Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." I mean, he's playing on that same thing, and they're Paul. Oh, who are you to forgive sins? Well, is it easier to say his sins are forgiven or to say, "Get up and walk"? Um, when Jesus, you know, Jesus touches the leper. Now, again, in the in the in the in the Mosaic system, Jesus touching the leper would make Jesus unclean. But when Jesus touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. Um, Jesus recruits, in English, fishermen. If the Greek, it's a little better because they are catchers of fish. And so this is where Peugeot's work is so, so helpful for, mod for people recovering from modernity, because if you understand Peugeot, you understand, well, what is the sea? And, and problem is that many contemporary English translations will, will translate it the lake. No, it's not a lake, it's the sea. And Jesus' fishermen go out into the world of chaos and bring back life. And there's a storm on the sea. What is that? That is chaos. And Jesus tells it to be quiet like someone tells their little dog to go to their bed. And, and so this story frames the entire cosmos and shows Jesus as the culmination of what was happening with Moses and only beginning. I think this, uh, this sort of strays off also into something like iconography. Um, as to as to what it means, and and here we let's let us escape uh, Christianity for a moment, and we'll put it aside, and or maybe maybe we're not going to do that because maybe this is a Christian story. I think it's not really up for us to determine that. But there's there's a, a Senegalese prince in or not not prince. There's this uh, Senegalese guy named Tuba Mbake. And this was in the time when Senegal was being colonized by the French. The Senegalese had to determine what do we do with the colonizers, right? And, and this is a question all colonized people have to ask. What do we do with these guys? Some were saying revolt. Some were saying, you know, uh, leave. Some were saying fight. And, and his response to this response, the Sufis' response, the Sufi Muslim was, we have to launch a, a jihad on But what made this jihad a great jihad it was the fact that it would be a non-violent jihad it would be a spiritual uh jihad so he convinces the Senegalese. i don't know how people buy this pitch is also a miracle but he's like we don't fight them back <laughs> we don't we resist peacefully right? this is pre-gandhi right this is unprecedented because like, yeah we just don't and uh you know of course the french got some of them down and beat them but eventually these guys roll around and they, uh, you know, the French realized that the blood of the martyr kind of becomes the seat of the church, more, gets more and more popular. 
uh, called our good friend Tertulli. And eventually, it's too much for the French to, to handle. It's just violence. They realize that. So, so they bring Tuba. They say, all right, listen, what do you want? And Tuba's like, we mm, just want better conditions. <laughs> like, rather modest, <laughs> like, asks compared to what, it, you know, what the French would ask if they were the colonists. And, you know, the French accept. There's a negotiation. Things end up for, uh, <clears throat> for the better. Well, now, if you go to Senegal, if you go to the city of Cuba, you will see paintings. They're almost like icons of Cuba um, mm. doing two things. I, I, and I, I love this concept. Thing number one, I wonder if this sounds familiar. He's, he's walking on water, making the impossible possible. Two. <laughs> so that's one. Two. He's pacifying the lions. Where have we heard that one? Right? Yeah. The great you know, idea of pacifism. And, and there's a sense that if I asked one of the Senegalese, listen, did that happen? Did that happen? Is this real? I'd be like, you're damn straight. He pacified the lions. Right? Um, you know, it, it, it's, and it's real, not in the sense that it's like fundamentally like in a fundamentalist way, it's real. Like I saw a lion try to attack him once. <laughs> like, no. And it's it's not just an allegory, and it's a, it's a true allegory. It's allegorically true. But it talks to a, a truth that straddles the line or is the essence of both someone pacifying the lions and someone pacifying the French. And that truth is true. It's, it's a very real theme. To this cosmic story, and that guy figured it out. Um, to me, this is the difference between a postmodernist and a Christian. That the postmodernist doesn't believe that these themes, that these truths are ultimately true, but that the, the Christian does, that the world has a story and there are themes in these stories that are true and themes that aren't true. That's why when someone's a heretic, they call them anathema, athematic. You're not part of this cosmic theme. Um, do, you, do you agree with this? Yeah, I, a part of the, you know, part of the difficulty is, okay, what do we mean by postmodern? But secularity, Secularity, I think, in many ways, is probably the sneakiest evangelistic trick that Christianity has ever pulled. Because it, it affords this enormous power by covering one eye and seeing the scientific vision. I've been listening to Hardcore History. It's a podcast. And he's been going through, Dan Carlin has been going through the story of the, uh, the Japanese supernova. You know, the Japanese, um, you know, like, you know, very isolated civilization. You know, Admiral Perry steams in and the Japanese are like, we are in deep trouble because we are technologically behind everyone. And the Japanese marshal their culture and they get to work. But culturally, they're still who they were. But now they've added science. And so they're off doing science and, you know, they build an impressive fleet and in 1905 or six, they clean the clock of the Russians and the Russian Navy and the Europeans are sort of on notice and they sort of, you know, tread water through World War I. But then in the 1930s, they decide, you know, they don't have enough natural resources, so they're going to eat China. 
Well, China is an awfully big country to eat. It's like the eagle trying to kill and eat the lion. Well, lion's pretty big for an eagle. So China gets itself into this war. And of course, you know, eventually, because, you know, the Americans start embargoing them. So we're going to knock out the fleet and in Pearl Harbor and get the Americans into a war, but they're a lazy people. They won't, they won't tough it out. So um, we'll, we'll get our empire. But along with this come all of these Chinese atrocities or Japanese atrocities. For example, the Doolittle Raid, they bomb Tokyo, it does pretty much nothing, but they, they basically look at bombing the emperor's palace and they figure out that the bombers flew and ditched in China and so the Japanese kill a quarter of a million Chinese who are in the area. I mean, this is just, a, it's just an astounding atrocity. But obviously, the, 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 the cultural operating system of the Japanese is not post-Christendom. They can kill a quarter of a million Chinese, and that's, that's simply how you do things. Okay. Japan loses the war. Christianity has never colonized Japan. You can read Silence and that little effort by the Jesuits and how it's crushed. And even today, lots of Koreans go to Japan, Americans go to Japan. Japan seems resistant to Christian, the church's colonization of the culture. It doesn't happen. But can any of us imagine Japan doing what it did in World War II today? No, why not? Well, these values that hitched a ride with secularism have colonized Japan. They haven't really colonized China as much, but look at Christianity and the church growing in China. And so there's this, there's this version of Christianity that we call secular that has taken over the West, and in many respects, has taken over much of the world. The question is going to be, well, what happens, now Now step in with Verveke's meaning crisis. Well, why, why are Western people who have plenty of food and, you know, at least in the scheme of history and on the world, relatively pretty good lives, why do they kill themselves? I was doing some sermons on suicide for a while, and for a while, one of the areas of, um, of teen suicide where, where the numbers were the greatest was the Bay Area. These were the children of the titans of the New World killing themselves. They didn't have a reason to live. And they had, according to the map of modernity and materialism, and you know, they had everything to live for. Well, why were they offing themselves? Why was it after Tolkien became famous, he couldn't dare walk around with a gun or a piece of rope all by himself? Secularism exposes missing segment of the human operating system. Dostoevsky pointed this out. Tolstoy pointed this out. Peterson understands it. Verveke understands it, and that's why he says we need a religion that isn't a religion because we need this we need this operating system if human beings are actually to live. And so, that's what we're playing out. So it, I'd love to chat about this further, but um, we've reached sort of our, our time mark and it would be great to chat about this another time, but 
uh, we appreciate having you on and we definitely think that these questions and conversations are, are worth having. And they're coming back for the benefits. Oh, they are. They're not going anywhere. So uh, thank you. Uh, Paul will hopefully talk to you again soon. Okay. My pleasure. Anytime. All right, Paul, thank you so much for that. Sorry that I kept having to go. I got double booked, much like I'm sure yourself and in, I'm at an office space. So there's in people, meet. it's not like I can email and say, hey, come back later. They're in person, like, hey, are we meeting now? Hey, are we meeting now? Yeah, if you wanna do this again, let's do it again. We'll just make sure we have the time right. Right, right, right. And I'll also, I, like, it doesn't seem like you care too much about getting the questions sent. You're comfortable with whatever it gets thrown your way. Did you happen to have the conversation about free will? A little bit. Okay. It, it's See, a product a, of modernity. This is what I'm specializing in. The, the conversation <laughs> about free will. No problem. Just so you're aware, I have this documentary. It's called Better Left Unsaid. It's about when does the left go too far. I'm very Petersonian in, this, in that question, in the formulation of the question. This is not for that. This is more for the channel as, itself, as okay. well as I'm working on another documentary. There's two. There's many, there's many. I'm working on a project on Christianity with Peter Linos right here. Okay. And it is, we're not sure what it's going to look like. We're thinking either mini doc or just put out the podcast or edit it together into a long documentary. We're in the exploratory phase for that. So it's Christianity documentary. Okay. There's that. There's another one I'm working on, on theories of everything. So my background's in physics and math. And there's, I'm sure you've heard of the theory of everything. Yep. Okay, there's that, but there's also consciousness, the idea of it, and then its relationship to God. Now, here's where I see myself as somewhat different than my physics colleagues, that that's an athlete. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Not to them, God and consciousness, spirituality, it's not to me. So I don't mind integrating different ideas and I don't have that. That bias, I might have other biases, but it's not that, definitely. That's where that conversation, I think you'll love the conversation between me and Donald Hoffman. I can't wait for you to see it. Yeah, really that sounds good. At times. Do you like Donald Hoffman? Have you yeah, he's many very interesting. Very cool. interesting cool. ideas. Great, great, great. Peterson, you know, Peterson no longer says that he's a 
a Christian or a believer in God, he'll just put asterisks or question marks to it. But if you look at some of his, before he was a sinusure, before he, his rise to fame, he said, here's proof of God. Here's how I prove God. Like there's an actual article by Peterson, proof of the existence of God. I really? can send that to you. Yeah, send it to me. I'd like and, to see it. And before he would say that, I think before he would identify as a Christian, if you look at his pre-2016 work in interviews, I believe there is a statement from him saying, I am a Christian, or at least I am extremely religious, he said. Yeah, he, he said that to Joe Rogan. He yeah. said he was religious, extremely religious. Right. Um, yeah, it, Peterson and his, and his uh, identity as a Christian is a, is a very interesting question. Okay, man. Thanks so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. My pleasure.